Well, all good things, as they say, must come to an end. And here we are tonight finding ourselves at the end of our study of the life of David as it comes to us uh, in First and Second Samuel. And we'll be in Second Samuel chapter 24 tonight. I said last week that as the author of Samuel brings his narrative to a close, uh, chapters 21 through 24 are kind of this intentionally arranged um, grouping of stories, and they're not necessarily, they're not chronological with what flowed before, uh, but they're kind of, but what, what, the, what the author is still doing, he's built this entire book. David didn't come onto the scene until First uh, Samuel 16, but he has built the entire book uh, to bring us to a climax of showing us the greatness of David as Israel's king. But as we're about to see in just a second, he ends it with yet another story of David screwing up. And so we think, what in, what in the world, how could, how could he be leading us to see the greatness of David if he's going to end uh, with a story of David messing up once again? But I want you to think to yourself, what if in this story, the author is still very much showing us the greatness of David as king? If I asked you the question, are you in good hands? Right? I think all of us pretty much would come, would think of the same thing, right? You'd either think of David Palmer from 24, uh, uh, the guy with the really deep voice in the Allstate commercial, or you'll, you'll think of the, the really hilarious Allstate commercials where the guy kind of personifies calamity, and they're all hilarious, and by the end of it, he's basically saying, this could happen to you, and they leave you with the question, are you in good hands? It's a uh, marketing strategy there for an insurance company. Are you in good hands? Are you in good hands? Well, the climax of this book, as we see tonight, and the climax of the point, climax of the point that the author is making, is that even in the midst of failure, even in the midst of weakness, even in the midst of judgment, as we will see, David knows, and therefore we know, whose hands he is in. Tonight, we're going to look at being in the hands of God. That's what we see tonight. So let me pray for us, and then we'll read this passage. Father, uh, we come to your word now, and we just ask that you would speak to us through it. Give us words of grace. Give us words of life. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's read here, 2 Samuel 24, starting in verse 10. But David's heart struck him after he had numbered the people. And David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. But now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. When David arose in the morning, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Gad, David's seer, saying, Go and say to David, Thus says the Lord, Three things I offer you. Choose one of them that I may do it to you. So Gad came to David and told him and, he, and said to him, Shall three years of famine come into your land? Or will you flee three months before your foes while they pursue you? Or shall there be three days pestilence in your land? Now consider and decide what answer I shall return to him who sent me. And David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is great. But let me not fall into the hand of man. 
So the Lord sent a pestilence on Israel from the morning until the appointed time. And there died of the people from Dan to Beersheba 70,000 men. And when the angel stretched out his hand toward Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented from the calamity and said to the angel who was working destruction among the people, It is enough. Now stay your hand. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Arana the Jebusite. Then David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking the people. And he said, Behold, I have sinned and I have done wickedly. But these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand be against me and against my father's house. And Gad came that day to David and said to him, Go, raise up an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Arana the Jebusite. So David went up at Gad's word as the Lord commanded. And when Arana looked down, he saw the king and his servants coming on toward him. And Arana went out and paid homage to the king with his face to the ground. And Arana said, Why has my lord the king come to his servant? And David said, To buy the threshing floor from you in order to build an altar to the Lord that the plague may be averted from the people. And then Arana said to David, let my lord the king take and offer up what seems good to him. Here are the oxen for the burnt offering and the threshing sledges and the yokes of the oxen for the wood. All this, O king, Arana gives to the king. And Arana said to the king, the Lord your God accepts you. But the king said to Arana, no, but I will buy it from you for a price. I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God that cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. And David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. And so the Lord responded to the plea for the land. And the plague was averted from Israel. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord will stand forever. This is God's word for us tonight. I want to look at three things here in this passage. It really actually is, in the end, it might not be a story that you're familiar with at all, but actually I hope what you're going to see is that it actually is a beautiful ending for what we've been looking at as far as the life of David is concerned and what the author is trying to tell us. So three things there, judgment against David, mercy for David, and the greatness of David. And I give a nod to Tim Keller for the naming of those points uh, because I think it's just a good way to look at the passage. The first one here is the judgment against David. And we didn't read the first nine verses. So we read here in verse 10 that David's heart struck him after he had numbered the people. What David had done was ordered a census. Okay, And we think, well, that's not that big of a deal. But it wasn't just a census that he had ordered. Um, He had ordered actually a counting of the fighting men of Israel. He ordered Joab, his top commander, to go out and count basically his soldiers. Okay, He wanted to know how many soldiers he had. And what's abundantly clear from the passage, okay, what, what all that really is clear to us in the passage is it was wrong. It was a sin. David says, I've sinned. Okay, at the beginning of the, of the chapter, we have Joab actually per, trying to persuade David that it didn't need to be done. Uh, in the first Chronicles account of the same story, we read that this was abhorrent. What David wanted was abhorrent to Joab. Okay, David himself is convicted about it and confesses. And then God sends judgment for what he's done. Okay, so it's clearly sin. The passage is clearly telling us, but we don't know exactly why. There's a handful of options. Um, in Exodus 30, there's a, uh, a, a rule about how you have to do a tax. Part of the kind of the Levitical law that you have to do a tax whenever you do a census. It doesn't seem like David has done that. Okay, so that could be it. It could be his motivations. Okay, I think it's kind of clear if a king is counting his men... Um, He's trying to see how strong he is, right? He's trying to see how strong the nation is. Uh, So it could be his motivations rooted in pride or self-sufficiency. 
Or he could have been preparing for some military conquest. He could have had his eyes on something that the Lord had not commanded and that the Lord did not want. But the plain answer of the passage is, we don't know. We don't know exactly why this was wrong and why it deserved punishment. But we are told plainly that it was wrong. um, But we're not being told why it's wrong. Now, why am I hammering this home? Why would that be significant for us, the reader, for anybody who would read this? The first readers and us now, thousands of years later, reading it. Because, if you think about it, if we're honest, this bothers us. We want to know why. We want to know why this is such a punishable offense. We want to know why 70,000 people have to die. We want to know why... This is going on because, I mean, the act in itself seems kind of harmless. Uh, It was a senseless act, a foolish act, um, sure. But what really is the big deal? And in a sense, this is really natural for us, okay? Uh, This kind of, this desire to know why. And there's nothing necessarily inherently wrong about wanting to know why. But it also is good to understand the culture in which we live in. Western culture is one that is, uh, that questions authority. We do, right? We question all authority. We are prone to question authority for a multitude of reasons. Uh, For one, we live in a society where the vast majority of people that are in authority over us uh, are put there by why? For what reason? Our choice, right? So we want to know why we've put over us are doing things that they're doing, right? So we, we, we hold people accountable. It's that whole for the people, by the people, of the people thing that, um, that Abraham guy talked about. Um, also, we're wary of the abuse of authority, are we not? Um, we know what the abuse of authority can look like. Uh, for instance, uh, I don't care where your opinion falls in any of these news stories, but if you're a black man, you're going to be thinking twice when you get pulled over in somewhere like Ferguson or, South, or North Charleston, am I right? Right? We have this kind of ingrained in us, this, this doubting or questioning of authority and wanting to know why. But here's the thing. You cannot take that attitude to God. You can't. And it's worth mentioning that we need to be honest at the front that we do take that to God a lot. We do take it to Him. Um, That attitude, though, doesn't work with God. It actually can be devastating. Because here it is, and this is just kind of a big, broad principle. Either God is God, or He's not. Right? Right? He's either God or he's not. And we assume, we assume in a lot of ways that God must always explain himself or justify his ways because that's how we deal with authority. That's how we deal when things are commanded of us or expected of us. We want to know why or how, right? Uh, Tim Keller says it like this. If everything God said or did made sense, then that wouldn't make sense. If you think about it, if he is God and we are creatures, if everything he did made complete sense to us, that would not make sense, would it? He's God and we're not. I like to think of it this way. Uh, If any of you know my son Harris, he's my second born. He is, uh, there's lots of words to describe him, um, but I'll be kind. He goes 100 miles per hour in everything. 
um, whether physically or emotionally. He's either, he's either all the way on or he's, a, or he's asleep, right? It always amazes me at night. Like he is, when he lays down, it's like, boom, he's out. But if he is awake, he is going 100 miles per hour physically, emotionally, whatever. Self-control is a thing we talk about a lot with him, okay, in a lot of areas. And many times with Harris, wherever we are, if it's in a parking lot, going into a store, if it's at home, wherever we are, right, I'm going to have a lot of things to tell him what to do or not to do. And I'm going to be reiterating that over and up. Harris, 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 right? It happens all the time. And inevitably, with all children, right, what is going to come? Why? Right? And look, again, seeking understanding is natural. We are, God gave us uh, rational faculties. Seeking understanding is a natural thing. It's not a problem. But here it is. If six-year-olds like my son only obey when they understand, they're going to die. <laughs> right? That, I mean, that's, I, I use this phrase with Harris, like, if you put him on a roof, he would run off of it without thinking in a heartbeat. That's just the way that he operates, right? If there is a God, and we are his creatures, even more than that, fallen creatures, right? That by our nature... Uh, rebel against him and turn away from him, then doesn't it stand to reason that there will be things about him and things that he says and things that he expects of us that do not necessarily make sense? Right. Because here it is. If, If you have a God that you can put in a box, he's not God. He's an idol. He's something made after your own image, right? Think back to the Garden of Eden. Garden of Eden, we always focus there in that point. One little verse where God gives Adam and Eve everything, but he says, of this tree you shall not eat, because in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die, right? And we get stuck on that because we think, well, he doesn't really tell why. He says what the consequences will be, but he doesn't really tell, tell them why they can't eat of it. Um, but here's the thing. That whole thing, what it tells us, is that the test, the command was not about a rule. It was about their relationship to him. It was about them exercising tangibly their relationship with him, with their creator. He was God. They were creatures. And obeying him and not eating of that tree was an exercise in right relationship with him, right? So I just want you to think at the outset here. If your obedience to God or Jesus is contingent upon what makes sense to you. You are not letting God be God. You're actually being a God unto yourself. And judgment comes when we do that. And that's what David did, apparently, here. So judgment for David, okay? But what about mercy? Mercy for David. Well, it's interesting. So we, we pick up here, verse 10 again. With a story that David understands. He confesses his sin without prompt, right? Nobody comes to him and tells him he's fallen this time. He just confesses it. His heart strikes him. So God sends this prophet Gad uh, not to condemn him, but to lay out the options. And we've seen this before. Once again, sin has consequences. David's sin here has consequences. So he's going to get to choose three years of famine or three months of fleeing from his enemies or three days of plague. Okay? Now, before we uh, go on to what he chooses, that's fascinating in and of itself. 
Because the consequences of David's sin in and of themselves are actually a mercy to David. Now, how do I get there? Bad things happening to him are a mercy to him. Well, follow me here. Okay, we don't know exactly what or why the census happens, but it is clearly about his military, right? About his soldiers. And it's somewhat clearly about David taking stock of his own and of the kingdom's self-sufficiency. So look at what each and every one of these consequences does. Famine. Okay, a famine in an agrarian society that's like a, a, a recession or a depression, like the Great Depression, right? Um, wealth is wiped out for everybody. You have to import everything from other countries. Therefore, you are economically, as a nation, dependent on everybody else to survive and thrive, right? Okay? Fleeing from your enemies, okay? That would, to be, that would be to be on the run, to let your enemies, your foes have the upper hand. You wouldn't be able to be on your throne. You'd have nothing to stand, stand from. You'd be totally on the defense, right? Or pestilence. Can't do much fighting with an army when they're all sick, right? So you look at all three of these and we think, well, what is God doing? He's dealing with David and Israel's idols, Their desire over and over again to be self-sufficient. Their desire over and over again to be like other nations. To have an army like other nations. To be a conqueror like other nations. But there's a problem with that. Jesus said that through that nation, Israel, the world would be blessed. So to be a nation like all the other nations would negate that. It's actually a great mercy... Because he's keeping them from their idols that would have led him astray. It was Israel who chose Saul because he was like the other kings of the nations. It was Israel who followed after Absalom when he rose up in rebellion against his father. And there was another story right after that where this guy named Sheba leads a rebellion against David. And people follow after him. And now God's judgment comes to them to open their eyes to the ways they keep falling away. But let's hone in. Why does David choose option three? Why does he choose option three? Look at verse 14. I'm in great distress. Let us fall into the hand of the Lord. For his mercy is great. But let me not fall into the hand of man. This is what David is saying. David is saying, I trust the mercy of God. Though his holiness is terrifying, I trust the mercy of God before I will ever trust the mercy of a man. That's what David's saying. David's saying, I know the reality of judgment. But I would rather fall into the hands of God than of anyone else. Okay, so though David is facing God's wrath... He is convinced and comforted by God's mercy at the same time. You see, you see this. How does this work? Okay, This is something we've talked about before, but get this. this is Ralph, a guy named Ralph Davis puts it like this. It's in the crises of his life that David's theology seems to come out of him like a natural reflex. Right? You look at verse 14 and there's kind of this necessary resignation of what he's facing. I'm in great distress. Okay, I know that there's judgment coming on what I've done. But at the same time, there's boundless consolation because I'm throwing myself upon the mercy of God. Right? And we see how well David knows God. Even in the midst of screwing up, Even in the midst of consequences for that, we see how well David knows God. You may have seen this video on some 
you know, some random TV show before. But in 1996, Brookfield, Illinois Zoo, a three-year-old little boy fell down into a den of gorillas. And so obviously everybody there is like, okay, there's a little boy unconscious laying in a pit of gorillas. Uh, We don't think of gorillas as being, you know, soft and sweet and stuff. But the amazing part of the video and the story is that actually a female gorilla named Binti scooped the little boy up like a baby and made her way across the den and sat by the door where zookeepers came in and out and held him there until a zookeeper came and took the child. You can YouTube it. It's an amazing video. It's awesome. Um, and we watch. Go watch it. You'll watch it. And it touches you. It moves you. It's, it's, it's an amazing thing, right? And it really happened. But here's the thing. That doesn't mean that the next day people were going to let children play with Binti the gorilla, right? It was a sweet, amazing thing that this gorilla did. But that doesn't mean that people were then going to entrust their children to her, right? Many people have kind of a very one-dimensional view of God. It's very easy to do this. And there's kind of two extremes with which you can do it. There's one extreme that says that they look at God and he's like, he's holy. He's transcendent. He's very distant from everything we are. Uh, He smites people and he sends people to hell and he kind of laughs while he's doing it. He's just kind of this cold, distant God, right? It's kind of this maybe Mount Olympus view of God's. um, And he just swoops down when he wants to every now and then. But just the same, the opposite end of the spectrum is a view of God. God just loves everybody, right? God just wants everybody to, to be okay. He just wants to include everybody. He doesn't want to judge anyone, any, anyone. By the way, whenever you are upset or moved or take up the cause of some injustice, you prove that that is not the kind of God you want, by the way. Nobody, want, nobody who is upset about injustice wants a God that just wants everybody to be included, Ralph Davis says says this like this. He uses the the gorilla illustration. He says this. Do we have a gorilla view of God's mercies? And what he means is this. He says, do we look at God's mercy in the Bible? Do we look at it in the gospel? Do we look at it in our own lives and we say that God's mercy is actually the divine exception? Rather than seeing it as how God reveals himself over and over as it being part of his divine character. His mercy is who he is. It flows out from his very being and it flows out to us in the way he goes, the way he deals with us. David knew God's just judgment against sin was a reality, but he also knew that God's mercy was greater still. You get that. You feel the weight of that. That's the whole thrust of this chapter as the story concludes is wrath, the reality of God's holiness and his just wrath against sin, wrapped in mercy. You are not moved by the mercy of God because you've yet to be convinced of the reality of God's holiness and his just wrath against your sin. God's mercy is just some pie in the sky to you until you've actually seen sin for what it is. He is holy. He cannot look at evil. It cannot come into his presence. It violates his nature. And it is a personal, open rebellion against him because he's our maker. That's the reality of sin and his holiness and his wrath. But we are told throughout scripture, he's merciful. And he wants us in his presence. And he moves in order to make that a reality. 
David thrusts himself upon this because David knows he will get judgment. But in the end, he says, I trust the hand of God not to go all the way. I trust the hand of God to be merciful. I trust that his mercy will triumph over judgment. It wasn't so much that David had a grip on God's mercy. See, this is why this is the climax of the David story. It's because what we're beginning to see is David is a man who has been gripped by mercy. Get the difference. It's not that David is gripping mercy. It's that mercy has gripped him. So that's why I want to see in conclusion here the greatness of David. The greatness of David. David's theology was dead on, okay? This is why he chose option number three. His theology is dead on. He knows God is merciful. And even before he pleads with him in verse 17, we see in verse 16 that David's theology was dead on because we see that the Lord relented. The Lord was sorry. The Lord repented of what he had done and he stopped it. Okay? He stopped it. He stopped it. Okay? And we're told that the angel of destruction stopped and that he was at the threshing floor of Arana, the Jebusite. And so David actually, I don't know how or why this happens, but David actually sees this angel. And so he pleads with God. And look at verse 17. Verse 17, he says, I have sinned. I have done wickedly. But these sheep, what have they done? Let your hand be against me. And my father's house. You see what David's saying? He's saying, I'm the one who screwed up. I'm the shepherd. Strike me so that the sheep may go free. That's what David's saying. God says, David, you're right. Someone has to pay. Someone has to be the substitute. But you can't be it. You can't be. And so David is instructed, and he goes as instructed, and he buys this plot of land from this Jebusite for the express purpose of sacrificing to the Lord. Okay? You see, here it is. When God relented and he stopped the judgment, his wrath was stayed. It was stopped. It was put on hold. It was paused. But it was not satisfied. Get that. When God relented, his wrath had been stayed, but it had not been satisfied. Now again, this makes us uncomfortable. This idea that God's wrath has to be poured out on something. Or that his wrath has to be poured out on somebody. Because you say God is loving. God is merciful. He makes a point to show that over and over again. To have this view of his wrath having to be, him having to be satiated in some way. That's a totally barbaric way of viewing God. But here's the thing. You've got to see this. The worst thing for us is if God's just and holy wrath against sin is merely stayed. That is the worst thing for us. Because what in the world is keeping it from coming again? Paul takes this up himself in Romans chapter 3, and he says this. Romans chapter 3, starting verse 23, he says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All. And are justified by His grace... As a gift, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, 
whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Here it is. We don't want God's wrath to be put on hold because we need it to be dealt with. And what Paul is saying in Romans chapter 3 is God has done just that when he put forward his own son to take it all in our place. Ralph Davis again. God in his mercy restrains his wrath. And God in his mercy provides the way for removing his wrath through atoning sacrifice. That's the picture we get here at the end of the story. God is so grieved over our condition. But because he is holy, he cannot just shrug sin off. Sin has to be dealt with. Therefore, he came in Jesus and dealt with it himself. He's the ultimate shepherd who says, Father, strike me that my sheep may go free. And we have there at the cross history once and for all showing us how God's mercy triumphs over judgment. Because God is infinitely holy. But he's infinitely merciful. God is so holy that Jesus had to die. He's so loving. He was glad to do it. Now herein lies the greatness of David. This is the greatness of David. It's not in what David did. But what God had done in him. That's what we see at the end of the story. It's right there in verse 10. Verse 10 we read. His heart struck him. His own sin grieved him. It didn't take a prophet coming and saying, you've screwed up. He knew it. His heart struck him. We're being told here that David was a changed man. And he had been changed by the mercy of God. That's it. And here's what it is. His greatness, David's greatness there. What it's showing us is that God's mercy is the only thing that will ever change us. It is the only thing that will ever change us. The only thing. You know, you need to stop defining your life by how well you do in your four years at Mercer. You need to stop that. Because you need to stop the pride or the self-hate that comes along with it. Whether you measure up or fail. You need to stop tearing other people down in your endless quest to build yourself up. You need to stop sleeping with your girlfriend or your boyfriend. You need to stop getting drunk every weekend or more frequently than that. You need to deal with your anger and how you take it out on other people or maybe even yourself. You need to stop these things because God is holy and God is just and you are bringing on yourself his just displeasure. You're sinning against him. But this is what you ultimately need to see. You need to stop those things. But it is only when you have apprehended God's mercy toward you in Jesus Christ that you will ever change. That's it. 
It's not in your hands. It is not in the hands of other people. It can only be found in the hands of the Lord. And here's what the really neat thing to me, maybe I'm a dork, but here's the really neat thing to me about this story. You know what happens with this plot of land? It's where Solomon builds the temple. So this whole story reaches its climax just to let us know how David acquired the land where Solomon would build the temple. So the David story ends setting the stage for how God was going to come and dwell amongst his people in the temple. Where he was going to be worshipped. Where sinners could come, sacrifice be offered, and sinners be made right with God. That's what the stage is set for. You've got to see the parallels with Jesus here. Jesus didn't just set the stage for something to happen. But by his death, sorry, by his death and his life, the veil in the temple is torn in two. And now nothing bars the way between us and God. And his spirit now dwells in us. And we aren't just in God's hands, but he's actually in us. I want to end all this with how the author of Hebrews talks about how Jesus is the greater sacrifice in Hebrews chapter 9, starting at verse 11. Hear this. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once and for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a cow sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, Purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. This is what I want to leave you with this semester. Let us fall, if we're going to fall anywhere, into his hands. And let us discover there that as David confesses in chapter four, uh, verse 14, that his mercy... He's great. And His grace is greater than all our sin. That is the invitation I leave with you this semester. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are in awe of Your mercy. We're in awe that someone took our place, the place we deserve to be, The judgment seat. That was our seat. It had our name on it. But he went before us. And he pleaded our case. And you saw fit to lay on him. The iniquity of us all. Father would you convince us tonight. Would you help us believe. That that is the only thing that will ever change us. We pray it in Jesus name. Amen.